Hi, teacher friends. Summer is the best time for teachers to learn, right? This summer, we'd love to have you join us for our free book club to discuss The Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler. Natalie will join us for a Q&A to answer your burning questions about knowledge. Sign up on our website, literacypodcast.com. And be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app for episode updates, especially our Science of Reading series this summer. I'm especially excited for this one, Melissa. This series will focus on the science of reading for all learners. We'll also discuss the science of reading beyond phonics, learning about fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And then be on the lookout for a special back-to-school series. We'll learn how to tell the difference between the science of reading or not, what recent research says about reading, and hear from teachers on their science of reading journeys. Yep, we'll even share a helpful and free resource explaining reading science to caregivers and families. We can't wait to keep learning with you. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are super excited because um, we have an incredible guest today. We have Mr. Tim Shanahan, and I personally couldn't be more excited. Tim, I couldn't sleep last night because... I was looking forward to this so much. Um, Melissa, I know that you've met Tim before, um, but I have not. So this is a real honor. Uh, Melissa, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Um, anything you want to say while we welcome um, Tim? Well, even though I've met him before, this is still an honor <laughs> to be able to talk to him again. Um, but really excited, you know, that you know we, we get um, Tim's blog every Saturday and it's <laughs> like... Uh, I think Lori and I immediately usually text each other and go, oh, look at what it is about today. And we have, end up having good conversations about it. So um, to be able to actually have a conversation around one of those with Tim is really exciting. And the one that we wanted to talk about was around prior knowledge. You know, we have had Natalie Wexler on before um, and we've talked about the baseball study. And, you know, um, we as a district in Baltimore City, we have um, adopted Wit and Wisdom, which also does a lot of work with prior knowledge. And so um, getting into the like nitty gritty of like what 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 is prior knowledge all about? What is this baseball study all about? And um, what are the like what should you do? What shouldn't you do? I'm really excited to kind of dig in a little bit further with that. Sure. Yeah. All right. So Tim, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right. So we are going to ask you to do a quick little introduction of yourself. Not that anybody doesn't know you, but maybe you want to share a new fun fact about yourself. <laughs> You've maybe been taking something up in the quarantine or <laughs> nothing new at all, guys. Um, I continue to do the same kinds of things. I continue to write blog entries and uh, review a lot of research uh, here and around the world. And uh, I've continued to, st I've been, some of people know I've been teaching myself French for quite a while and I continue to work on that. Actually, now I have a teacher. I'll, I'll, because I'm starting to learn oral language, not just written language. Uh, so I've actually had uh, had classes, but they're done like this. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's not that different. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. 
Uh, Tim, so we want to um, just really jump in with uh, your blog post, Prior Knowledge, or He Isn't Going to Pick on the Baseball Study. Um, will you just tell us a little bit about what inspired that? Oh, I think right now I'm hearing uh, a, a ton of folks. I, I've been getting... Uh, Oh, uh, information from particular states that are considering dropping reading instruction and reading testing because all you need to do is build knowledge according to the baseball study. It doesn't matter if you can read. It just matters if you know stuff. Uh, Any number of of teachers uh, with really similar kinds of questions, either uh, thinking that that's what they should do or feeling pressured that that's what they should do and they want to resist and they're looking for information. Uh, prior knowledge is a very important thing, and having knowledgeable boys and girls and men and women is, is man, I, who could, what teacher could <laughs> ever be against knowledge? I mean, right. don't put me on that side. <laughs> but I think we're when it comes to you know our concerns about helping kids to be better readers, I think we're we're overdoing it a bit, or maybe we're trivializing it a bit and making it something very very specific when it's actually something very general and, uh, you know, so again, it needs attention, but it doesn't necessarily need the kind of attention that maybe people are trying to give it. Yeah. Um, when you think about like, so when people are asking you questions and you're thinking through their questions of how much knowledge versus (laughs) how much skills or strategies, like I think skills and strategies are used um, interchangeably, but that's not really the intent of those terms. Could you kind of break apart all of that for us so that our listeners have an understanding of what we mean from here on out when we're saying building knowledge versus skills and strategies? Yeah, it, it's a real uh, good point that you're making. Um, in in the research community, we tend to use those terms differently. In uh, schools and general conversation, even we probably lump them together and, mm-hmm. and, and make a, a bit of a mess of it. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll try to distinguish them, but you're going to see lots of people, you know, mixing them up or, or whatever. Yeah. When I think, you know, and, and skills is a very wide term, you know, it, 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 you know, there are skills within reading. I, if you think of decoding, for the most part, what we teach in decoding are skills, mm-hmm. They're highly repetitive. You know, if you see PH at the beginning of a word or a syllable, I'll bet you it's going to sound like an F. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, well, are you saying there are never any exceptions? In it? No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I am saying that there are, there's a, a great deal of repetitiveness. And so that if you learn a particular pairing of, of sound and symbol, it's going to put you in good stead as you, as you read other texts. Uh, it, it'll help you. Uh, when we use the word skill to refer to reading comprehension, that gets a lot shakier. <laughs> it's, you know, when you, oh, well, main idea, you know, finding the main idea is a skill. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's great. How do you repeat that? What are, what's, <laughs> you know, can you define main idea well enough that I could, uh, you know, show it to you in five different texts or yeah. get even five different people to agree what the main idea of a particular text is? Uh, when we, we do those kinds of studies, we come away shaking our heads and saying, well, gee, maybe it's not really a skill. 
this notion of there being comprehension skills doesn't actually come out of the science. It doesn't come out of uh, cognitive psychology. It doesn't come out of any kind of psychological research. It actually, it, it comes from the textbook companies back in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's that. Isn't that wild? <laughs> They're making up lessons. But they needed lessons. Uh, you know, in the 1920s, they, they invent something that had never existed before, the teacher's guide. Uh, you know, up to that point, you know, from the time of Webster and, you know, before that even, uh, you know, school books, that's yeah. just what they were. They were the books the kids used. There was usually a page preface, one or two page preface, uh, which was a note to the teacher saying, you know, things like hand out the books and have the kids read them and stuff. I mean, in the 1920s, somebody gets the idea, what if we sold lesson plans along with the books? Wouldn't that be neat? You know, <laughs> maybe people would want that. And in fact, they did. <laughs> but, but then you've got to come up with lessons. And you've got, well, gee, what would you, you know, do with this? And really about the only thing at the time that research had had to say about reading comprehension was it was really good to ask questions. Uh, Thorndike did a favorite, famous study in the 19-teens, where, which is pretty much what they had to go on, uh, essentially had two groups, uh, you know, one who read a passage and then you know, took the test, and one who read a passage and were asked questions about it and then took the test. Yeah. And guess what? If you ask them questions, they did better. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay, we're going to ask questions. And I, I think teachers were probably doing that before that study, but, you know, yeah. asking, you'd ask some questions. And it, it sort of evolved into, well, maybe there are particular kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. What if our program asks like seven kinds of questions? Uh, and, and so we've, we sort of fell into this notion that there were types of questions and that those questions were somehow revealing skills. If you look at the research on that that's been done over now almost 100 years, uh, you find very little support for the idea that that any of these question types or skills that they're re- repeatable, that if you teach them, you get much gain in reading comprehension and so on. And yet everybody believes in them because the tests ask certain kinds of questions now. And right. you know where they got that idea? From the, trying to map onto the textbook companies in the 1930s. <laughs> so it goes around and around and around in a nice circle. Yeah, um, it's so, a big one, huh? Yeah, so I'm not a huge fan of of trying to teach uh, comprehension skills or trying to ask certain kinds of questions so that the kids can practice their, you know, work in that part of their brain or something. Uh, You know, I'm very big on, yeah, you should ask questions about the text, but you should ask questions that are based on the text. What's important in this text? Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about asking a particular kind of question. You you should be asking all kinds of things about the text that require the kids to think deeply about it. And, and uh, you know, so skills ain't teachable when it comes to reading comprehension. Probably not a good, the, the closest thing we have to a skill in reading comprehension is vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that if you build up kids' knowledge of vocabulary, it improves their comprehension. So, okay, you know, so that would be the closest thing we have to a skill. And it's got its benefits and drawbacks as well. But okay. Uh, But generally, no, what we mean by skills and comprehension isn't really it isn't something that's real. It isn't something that's teachable, doesn't improve kids achievement, despite school principals ordering the teachers to 
have kids answering all kinds of questions that look like the test questions. That just doesn't really work. There's a different idea that came up largely in the 1970s and 80s, and, and that was when the cognitive psychology was really into the idea of strategies, that mm -hmm. learners are intentional, that people are trying to figure out their world, but they do this on purpose, and that there are things, there are actions you can take that will improve your chances of knowing things, remembering things, you know, learning things. Uh, there were when folks started referring to these as comprehension strategies, there was some pushback against it because they're not sort of pure comprehension. They're sort of what can you do to you know sort of be up for the game so that you will comprehend. Uh, mm -hmm. And and so I, you know I think of some of my colleagues who argued, you're talking about study skills. You're not talking about comprehension. <laughs> you're talking about yeah. ways. You know, <laughs> and, and the, the kinds of things that go into this pot are are intentional activities that anybody takes when they're trying to understand or remember a text. And they, they can range from things that haven't been studied quite as much or haven't done quite as well in the studies. Like, well, when I read, I go through and highlight the important parts so I can go back and review it again. Mm -hmm. uh, or I make notes to myself in the margins. Yeah, annotation um, was real big for a little bit there. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and those are strategies. Can we gear of our lives to annotation? I think we can. <laughs> <laughs> but those are intentional actions that you take. Gee, what could I do that would slow me down that would focus my attention, things like that. And so you'll find mm -hmm. some of the ones that have been studied a lot and have a lot of research support. It, when you're reading a text, it's a good idea to stop occasionally and sum up, sum up what they've told you so far. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do it, if, if you can't remember something, go back and look and then go on and read another section and do the same thing and so on through the text. Or self-question. Gee, you know, I read a section, then I ask myself some questions about it. I, I quiz myself to see if I can answer them. And if I can't answer them, I, I reread it or I go back. And, you know, it, it takes me a lot longer to do that. So I spend more time on the text. It, but at the end of it, I know more than the kids who just read it. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are a number of, you know, gee, vi try to get a picture of it in your head. Can you visualize what the author's telling you about? All those kinds of things. And there, there's a, a huge body of research, uh, mostly done in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, looking specifically at do those things give a benefit? And it is true that they do. Uh, kids comprehend better if they use some of those strategies. Um, they don't do, you know, it's not, wow, the kids with the strategies are up here and the kids without them are down here. <laughs> it's, you know, it's more, you know, it gives a, a, a small benefit. They're useful. Uh, you know, I, given that we have literally hundreds of studies showing that these are effective and beneficial, you know, I certainly argue for teaching those. Um, but the, if you actually look at the research studies, you find that they're often able to get the impact. They're able to get the effects that they're going for in terms of, you know, kids learning. Often in, in you know, a couple of months of teaching, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, that kind of thing you look at those hundreds of studies and say, well, okay, so this one did six weeks and this one did eight weeks and so on. When you look at what that's been translated to into practice is this notion of from the time kids are in kindergarten till they leave high school in 12th grade, they should be learning comprehension strategies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and also what's scary is that the comprehension quote strategies also 
I'm, and I'm just making an inference, right, from experience, include skills. So yeah. you're going through both strategies and skills as we're defining today. And you're, you know, you might be in kindergarten learning main idea and then for a few weeks then visualizing, then questioning, then, um, you know, drawing conclusions. And then again, repeating that in first grade and repeating it. Is that like, I'm understanding. That's exactly right. So you go, well, gee, you found eight weeks of instruction of that was really useful. And now you've turned it into 13 years of (laughs) 180 days a year of instruction. Yeah. is it really worth that much? Is it, are the payoffs that big? Are they, do you really have reason to believe that if we do this year in and year out, kids are going to do better? I mean, with phonics, at least we have a, a, you know, a few studies showing that, man, you give a whole year of this and the kids do well. Well, we have several studies of that. We have a few studies showing, gee, you give that to kindergartners and they do well. You give it again in first grade, you give them more phonics and they do even better. The, the, you know, their benefit rises in about three years, you know, is, is pretty beneficial for these kids. We don't have anything like that on comprehension strategies. Mm-hmm. So you go a year of comprehension strategy instruction. Can I see the study where anybody did that <laughs> and they got a bigger payoff than they did after, you know, a couple of months? I think what, for the most part, what strategy instruction does is it, it it emphasizes that you've got to comprehend. You're trying to understand and remember this stuff. You got to keep your head in the game. You got to pay attention. Uh, you stay focused on that content. Spend extra time on it. Try to figure out what's important and put more time into that part. It's that kind of thing. Um, you know, how much of that do you need? And it's probably more than six or eight weeks because we know that teaching more than one strategy is good and so on. But really, 13 years? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I also, too, know, like, I I know when I was a newer teacher and I was in my master's program for reading, being a reading specialist, and I learned all about the National Reading Panel. And, you know, this was that was what I learned about were these reading strategies. And I think I being totally vulnerable here, but I went totally overboard with it. And I was like, all about like, can they make predictions? Can they ask questions? And it was just like checking off these boxes of, yes, they can do these these, <laughs> these skills or strategies. But I wasn't really focused on what I think now is really important was like, are they actually understanding the text by doing this? Right. <laughs> um, so I think that too, like that, you know, like, same with the um, prior knowledge, I think that people can go overboard with yeah. what they're really focused on. Yeah. And that, and the knowledge one is interesting because at least some of those, com- not the skills, but the comprehension strategies are actually focused on bringing to bear what you already know about the topic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a strategy might be, you know, something like K- along the lines of KWL or similar activities. Gee, but before you read this, why don't you look it over and just, you know, think for a few minutes about what do you already know about this or what, you know, what do you think you know about these topics? And that can be beneficial. It can also be problematic. Uh, but that's a strategy that you'd say, well, that's a strategy for using your prior knowledge. There's some people now these days who are doing um, studies where instead of trying to do prior knowledge before you read when it's problematic in a number of ways, uh, trying to bring your knowledge to bear as you're reading to, you know, categorize the information of, gee, this is something that I already know. Gee, this is new. Uh, Gee, this contradicts something that I think I'm, you know, I Mm -hmm. believe or that I thought was true. Hmm. You know, (laughs) and, and thinking those through reasoning with those, that's a strategy. 
Uh, it's one that you know hasn't been studied a lot, but seems to work. Uh, but it's specifically about how do I bring my knowledge to bear, not ahead of time, but as I confront the information. And so, you know, it, it, the, the strategies, um, the ones that have been studied a lot, I think there's just no question that they work and they can be beneficial and that they're generally useful. I, I think of them largely as paying attention strategies or spending extra time mm -hmm. strategies, but nothing wrong with that. I, if you don't pay attention and spend the time, you're not going to learn something. Uh, <laughs> but I think that there are a lot of more unique ones or specialized ones that as you get older and as you're doing more specialized kinds of reading become kind of interesting. And so you see historians looking real hard at, gee, you know, I, I need to be watching for information that will, will reveal this author's point of view where he or she is coming from. Because I know they have biases. I know they want me to believe certain things. I need to watch for that. Well, you know, that's not on the list of strategies that we teach. But it is one that history teachers these days are teaching more and more of. And it makes mm -hmm. great sense. Doesn't make so much sense usually in science reading, but it's terrific in history reading. So, you know, you start to get these more narrow, very specific, but extremely useful strategies that eh, we don't pay much attention to. So we, we spend probably too much time on the general ones. We ignore almost totally some of these more specialized ones. And we ignore two things that you know are getting, one of them is getting a lot of attention these days, which is knowledge and, and the reason you wanted to talk to me. But I would argue this, the, the other one that should be getting more attention is um, written language. Learning how, you know, certainly vocabulary is a piece of that, but so is syntax, making sense of sentences that are, mm -hmm. you know, tying you up, cohesion, linking ideas across text, organization, knowing the discourse structure and using that. And again, there's some strategies tied to that. Um, I don't, th there, there's a substantial body of research saying that you can teach kids some of those aspects of written language and improve their reading. Um, there, it might even be possible to do some of that with oral language, but there, there just there are only a couple small studies that have been done, and I've talked to the authors of both of those, and they both said, "Well, I wouldn't generalize too far from that little study." You know, mm -hmm. and so it, it might be possible to do the same thing with oral language, but definitely with written language. And so I would certainly I'd continue to teach strategies, though I certainly wouldn't do anywhere near as much as we do. I would certainly uh, teach some of those specialized strategies in science and social studies and literature as kids get older. I would continue to talk to kids and discuss text and ask questions, but I wouldn't worry so much about those comprehension skills and asking particular kinds of questions. And I would spend, I'd definitely spend some time on, on teaching, you know, specifically and explicitly some of those aspects of oral, of written language so that the kids are better at making sense of the text, not just in using the information later. Um, but which leaves us knowledge. What do you do about that, Im the information part? Yeah. And that, that's where it, it gets, people are ranging from ignoring it or telling you to try not to do anything with it, like in close reading. Mm -hmm. uh, to 
prior knowledge is all there is. Once the kids can decode, stop teaching reading, and let's just worry about social studies and science. And I don't think either of those extremes is right. <laughs> knowledge is really important in in reading and a lot of other things. I think, in fact, I think it trivializes it if if we make the the purpose of building knowledge so that kids can comprehend better. Uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, you know in reading. I, I think that's. Gee, we do a lot more with knowledge than that, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So let's 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 not do that to it. But what should we do with knowledge? And uh, uh, that's that's where it gets kind of interesting, and where I think people over overdo and 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 they ignore the bad parts of knowledge. Um, you Ooh, know, what are the bad parts? The bad parts are when you ignore. Uh, the the text when you ignore what it's actually saying mm. because you already know <laughs> uh, it, people like this are really tiresome they get <laughs> they're, they're annoying and that's that's where uh, so many of our stereotypes are you know gee I'm reading this piece about science but it's written by a woman and I know women don't know anything about science so I don't really have to pay very much attention to what she has to say uh, you know, prior knowledge is the kid in the physics class who knows the way gravity works. Stuff just falls in a certain way. And he's absolutely sure of it, even though what the text is actually saying is, no, objects don't fall the way you think they do. You've made up this image in your head, like, you know, like the guys who draw the cartoons. But that isn't actually what's going on here. And if you use your prior knowledge, you're going to ignore everything I tell you, and you're not going to understand how the world works any better than you did before we did all this really good physical science and figured these things out. And so and, and we have studies of that. My, my wife did a number of studies like that with high school and college kids. Mm. There are even studies like that of first graders, that when they know something, they just ignore the information in the text. So in a, in a place where you emphasize knowledge and make a big deal out, out about what kids know before they read it and all that, you, what you really do in a lot of cases is you just reinforce their ignoring the message that's coming in. And that's bad reading. That's, that's not better reading. Uh, and, and so that's, uh, there's, there's the bad part of knowledge. It, it, forces, it, it allows you to ignore what authors are telling you. Um, I never thought about it that way. I think a lot of, you know, of our our previous podcasts and just in conversations, Melissa and I will, of course, talk about equity a whole lot. And so when we think about knowledge, we think about it as that level playing field. And I never thought about the idea of prior knowledge getting in the way, um, because I guess as a adult reader, I'm taking my prior knowledge and I'm able to see what is accurate or not, right, as I'm reading and then changing my decision or or my thoughts as I'm reading as I'm gaining more knowledge um, but for a student or for a, a a reader who may not be as adept they're they're not even paying attention they're like I already know that like yep. I'm checking the box off instead of receiving the new information from the text is that what I'm hearing you say yeah that is um one of the things that studies have found is, for example, we know this happens a lot in physics because the physics teacher or physics professor is often telling you things about the world that seem to defy your perception, mm-hmm. that you know, aren't the way you think it really is. 
And, you know, here's how we found that out and so on. If you have kids think about their prior knowledge, you know, fill out a form, you know, showing how you think the ball falls, make your predictions, do all that kind of stuff. You actually lower the kids' comprehension from the text. It, it, you reinforce their, their preconceptions, and uh, which leads them not to have a, a better purchase on, on, you know, what they're about to read about, but to actually uh, just reconfirm their preconceptions and ignore the fact that the text is telling them something simple. That those kids are actually much better off not talking about what they know and getting a refutation text, which is a text that literally says, you know, people believe this. But look at this, <laughs> you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, 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 it takes it on directly and, and, you know, tries to, you know, overturn that idea rather than trying to, uh, you know, reestablish it or, or make it strong. It's, it's hard enough to change people's thinking about something if they already believe that it works a particular way. And obviously, you know, in science, you, you can test that kind of stuff. But when we get into people's biases and beliefs yeah. about the world and so on, It can be, it's not just that they reject the text. They don't understand the text. They don't get that they're being told something different. (laughs) And and so they they miss it. Uh, And and so it's bad comprehension. Uh, uh, And so we have to be careful of that. You know, one of the big payoffs from prior knowledge is that you have less to learn in a text. But that's not, okay, you know, everybody comes to a text at some point where you go, well, I don't know anything about this, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, it's, uh, you know I, and I do that purposely. I take on texts that I, I, I'm not prepared to read. I don't know much about already. I wouldn't be able to make good predictions. Uh, I'm able to learn from them. I'm not saying it's as easy as, as from a text where I already know half the information the author's going to tell me. Mm-hmm. But it isn't that the kid is being made a better reader because he already knows half the information and therefore can ignore some of the stuff. He's just, you know, he's he's he already knows it. If if you gave him the test before you you uh, had him read the text, he would do better than the other kids might be doing already. So is that that's not really making him a better reader? That just means he didn't have to read as much in this case. <laughs> and I, and I think that's part of what goes on in the baseball study. Gee, you know, the kids who could read well didn't do any better than the kids who knew a lot about the text. The kids who could already answer a lot of questions about the text without the text did mm-hmm. as well as the kids who could read it. But what we, what we want to do is take make your reading allow you to, to find out things that you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the idea is, oh, you know, the good readers already know everything. So they don't really even have to read it. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not really where we should be trying to go. So, yeah, I am critical of that reading of the baseball study. Uh, the way it gets talked about, it sounds like, wow, the kids who knew about baseball did better than the kids who had reading comprehension strategies. That's how we get talked about. That's actually not what they tested. <laughs> they tested the kids' ability to read. How They tested how good their reading comprehension was. Uh, not, And so it was like, oh, okay. So the kids who were better readers, you know, if you were a poor reader and knew a lot about the information, you could get some of it anyway. You could get a lot of it anyway. Uh, and, and if you were a really good reader, you could get a lot of the information. Uh, okay. You know, that's that doesn't surprise me at all. 
there are a ton of studies. That's the only study done that's like that. So, mm-hmm. so it's a one-off. But there are a ton of studies showing that reading comprehension uh, it certainly depends on knowledge. We use our knowledge when we try to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to work a lot harder at it if, if we know less about a text or uh, the topic it's going to cover. doesn't yeah. mean we can't learn from it. That's where strategies really should come in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that but, kind of thing. When I, so, Tim, when I'm talking with districts, one of the things that one of the first questions they ask is, well, what about when kids, what about if this piece of knowledge isn't covered, right, in um, Wit and Wisdom, and kids come to this question on a state test, right? So what if they don't have the knowledge? What if they didn't learn about the Revolutionary War, but the question on the test is about the Revolutionary War? What then? And one of the things that I, I try to, you know, impart is that knowledge is the undergird, but the strategies are, are embedded within, and so those strategies are then what they're pulling out to make sense of this new text, which is, I think, what I'm hearing you say, right? Yeah, I, I mean, well, think about, we have a group of kids, and we want them to read this text, and we want them to try to understand it. One of the things that people do to try to enable that is, oh, you know, this is going to be about the Revolutionary War. The more I tell these kids about the Revolutionary War, the better they're going to understand it. And what the teachers often do in those situations is tell kids stuff from the text <laughs> that <laughs> they just took away any reason for reading it. Well, you know, if you know that this battle took place in Pennsylvania during 1776 and that these were the two sides, you'll understand better this story. Well, yeah, but you'll also get 39% of the questions answered already before you, you know, what you just did is you made the text easier. You didn't actually teach me how to make sense of it. Right. Whereas a better strategy might've been to say, Hey, you know, guys, you know, I just did a little quiz with you and it's clear you don't know very much about the revolutionary war. And, but this text is going to talk about the revolutionary war. And I want to see how much you can figure out and what questions you have, uh, you know, when you're done reading this page or these, you know, this section or the whole thing. And, and, you know, working through that with the kid, well, gee, uh, you know, you're, you're still struggling on this first part. Let's go back and look at that more carefully and see what you can figure out. Now, I have absolutely no problem giving the kids some background information uh, that, let's face it, we pick the text for kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a typical textbook situation, we pick the text. Mm -hmm. And these are usually, these days, they tend to be texts that have been, they're not written specifically to teach reading anymore. We used to do that, but now they're we pick, you know, we found this really cool little book about the Revolutionary War. And the author who wrote it assumed that his readers were going to know these certain things. But the author didn't think that somebody else was going to pick the text for you. (laughs) So, aha, I'm going to give you a text about something you know nothing about. And the author assumed you'd have this interest in the Revolutionary (laughs) War, probably some knowledge of it. And so he didn't bother to explain who George Washington was because he just assumed you'd know that when you read the text. The example I often use is is, is actually not a piece of content, but it's a a piece of literature, Uh, an old John Updike story. uh, And and what's the title? It's something about at the AMP. Uh, Well, you know, when he wrote that in the 1950s, 
there probably wasn't an American teenager who didn't know what the AMP was. There certainly weren't adults who were going to be reading John Updike in New Yorker magazine and we're going to go, what's an AMP? I don't know what he's talking <laughs> about. And he doesn't explain it. He never, you know, just, people are all at this grocery store, you know, uh, you know, he just doesn't. Uh, I was thinking it was grocery store. I'm glad it was right. <laughs> One time, that was like one of the biggest national brands that there was. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, you'd have to pick some other, you know, grocery store. But I wouldn't spend a half an hour studying grocery stores and looking it up on the internet and showing kids right. pictures <laughs> of the AMP. I would say, hey, kids, you know, an AMP was a grocery store. Let's go. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything else in that story that I would try to pre-teach or jump in. But John Updike used that title because he knew everybody at the time was going to know what that was. But, you know, it's 70 years later and AMP hasn't existed in 40 or something. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're going to have to fix it. But fixing it in this case isn't we're going to spend 15 minutes talking about grocery stores. It's AMP is a grocery store. Why do you think that happens? Why do you think that... All that, that stuff, that pre, prior stuff happens. Like, why would we, you know, investigating grocery stores or if I were a teacher, why would I be doing, like, what makes that happen? Because I'm so curious about that and I feel like it happens more times than I'd like to, you know, be happy that it happened. Like, I even see it in, you know, my own child's experience and it, it, <laughs> I'm dying to know your thoughts on why. <laughs> it, it, it's... When the, the Common Core Standards came on and, and the folks who put that together were promoting close reading, which is really trying to read without a lot of emphasis on background information, they were kind of reacting to what they were seeing was going on in schools. I went back and looked real closely at the literature on prior knowledge and, and what people were doing to show that it was important and to show that you could you know get kids to engage it and so on. In the studies... Uh, prior knowledge was often something like, you know, the, to support kids' use of prior knowledge. A lot of times it was you told the readers what the topic was. This article is about washing clothes, or you gave it a title that told what it was. You know, <laughs> that was it, two words, washing clothes. <laughs> and that made all this huge difference. And then when curriculum designers, oh, yeah, now, yeah, we can help kids with prior knowledge. We'll have a 15-minute discussion. They're looking for a shape of a lesson. They're, how do I fill 40 minutes? Um, instead of what, what is it that they did in the study? You know, it might be write down three things, you know, about this topic. Okay, let's go. Now let's read. Oh, look, it gave kids a benefit that becomes a, a you know, a 15 or 20 minute discussion. And, and, you know, the reason why teachers do that sometimes is they're literally trying to fill time. <laughs> I mean, I remember as being a beginning teacher, my biggest yeah. fear was how do I fill the day? Wow. How do I not run out of stuff? Uh, even as a college professor, oh, you know, let's talk about the history of this word for 27 minutes before <laughs> we learn, you know, it, you know, where did the word computer come from? And what did people think computers were in 1927? <laughs> oh, okay. And he, here's the on switch, kids. Um, you, know, it's, <laughs> you don't need 15 minutes to show them where the on switch is, guys. You can, it's just, in fact, some of them will even figure it out on their own. It'll be on before you wanted them to turn it on. <laughs> uh, you know, we so we do tend to to fill time. That's one piece. A, a, a different, uh, you know, explanation of it 
is frankly, people don't read those studies. They hear that prior knowledge is important. They don't think through why is it important? What does it give me? Uh, what do you do if you read something uh, that you're not understanding? What would help you? Uh, it, they're not thinking about those things. They're, they're just thinking about this kind of abstract idea. Gee, people told me prior knowledge was important. I know my kids don't know anything about Eskimos. Therefore, we're going to study Eskimos for three days before we can read a paragraph about Eskimos. Yeah. Um, that's, that's bizarre. And I, I do worry that, you know, Natalie's book, you know, she's not trying to do that, but that people will go, yeah, I knew it was just about prior knowledge. <laughs> and, and therefore, you know, it, what we really should be doing is telling kids, I mean, this is not a new problem. The, the Greeks back thousands of years ago were dealing with this one. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was, how could you ever learn anything new if you didn't already have the knowledge? And they ended up with this notion of infinite regress. You always have, well, you know, you'd tell them about Eskimos. Yeah, but if they don't know about Eskimos, how could they learn it when I tell them? Well, you know, there's <laughs> something else they have to know before that. And you never, ever get to the text. You just, you know, constantly are stepping back. What you need to do at some point is say, no, I don't know anything about Eskimos, but the author's going to tell me something. And it's going to be harder for me to learn it and remember it the first time than it would be the third time that I've covered this information. Mm -hmm. But there are some things I can do as a reader. That's where strategies really come in. There's some things I could do as a reader that I'll go through this information two or three times before I'm done with this text. And so the next time I read about Eskimos or hear about Eskimos, I'll actually know something. Yeah. You know, it, it's... It, that's where the fact is. Then you're building that prior knowledge, right? Yeah. Kind of make that explicit for those who are listening. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to get the word prior out of there altogether. We need to build knowledge. Right. And, and building knowledge, making kids know stuff about their world. Some of that is, is the kinds of, of stuff that uh, E.D. Hirsch worries about, uh, which is academic information academic mm -hmm. knowledge they they should know who Kant was and they should know you know what happened in 1776 and and you know what the difference between a virus and a bacteria are and and that kind of stuff but a good deal of what you read the prior knowledge comes in when you gee there was an episode that took place at the school and then the next episode the kid was at home and I assume he left school and went home I you know you, you fill that gap in yeah. your head it's not oh well this is weird there's like this whole other thing happening here where this kid is in a whole different place talking to his mom about what happened at school that day and I'm totally confused now because I don't know how, <laughs> how could he ever get from school to home you, <laughs> you feel those kinds of gaps by you know well you know I, I bet he went home <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a big deal. We, you know, we, we handle those kinds of things rather well, but we handle them because we do have knowledge of the world, knowledge, social knowledge, knowledge of how people move around and, you know, what happens if somebody calls you a name? What, you know, what does that make you feel? The author doesn't have to say that it upset you or made you mad. Uh, he can just show you uh, that I picked up a stick and threw it at the, the other kid when he called me that. Uh, you know, the author doesn't have to sit there. Tim got angry. 
<laughs> you know, it, 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 it's and it's not it, it's not something that you're going to learn in a science class or a social studies right. class. So you have these two. I mean, it's, it's all one body of knowledge, but we have these these two that sort of real life just stuff that we don't even talk about, about how we move around and think and do things. Uh, and, and this, this declarative knowledge, this, uh, domain knowledge, this knowledge of, you know, that comes out of academia. Uh, and, and obviously we want kids to have a ton of all of that, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you've got a one-year-old, I know, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> What do, you t- you spend time doing things like cheer? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How many times do you say cheer? <laughs> that is my whole day. Yes. <laughs> you know, I have a one-year-old granddaughter, and and you know, it's a thrilling when she knows which one is Minnie Mouse and which one is <laughs> Elmo, and what, you know, <laughs> this knowledge of the world. Now, Edie yeah. Hirsch isn't too worried about who Elmo is. <laughs> You are, I assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we want to build knowledge, uh, and I don't think we do enough of that in school. Yeah. Uh, can, and, I, can I ask you a quick question, Jim? Yes. So in in that thought process, right? Um, building knowledge. Let's let's use the one year olds as an example. I think it's a fabulous example. Um, if you were reading with your granddaughter would you only stick to the kind of text that she'd be able to read on her own or like that you could read with her or, or would you, I don't know, like, would you be providing like different texts to have her expand her vocabulary? Like, I think this could be translated into leveled text type of scenario down the road. Um, and I'm just curious how you would speak to that. You know, I, with a one-year-old, you know, almost everything is a stretch. I mean, <laughs> a picture book that has one word and, you know, that, oh, look, that's yellow and that's red. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that is a stretch because they yeah. typically don't know anything about colors or they don't know the names of the objects and, and or they don't know. You know they're, they're figuring out, they're, you know, one is a great age for 10 months is a great age for finding out that if you take your cup and push it off the edge of the, <laughs> the high chair, it, it'll fall on the floor and mom and dad will jump up and run around. And it's really cool. And so they, they're learning things about that. They don't know that it's called gravity, but they're, they're learning things about that, you know, early on. Um, but I, your point though is, is, you know, should we be stretching kids? And I got to tell you, I, as a parent, um, I read a lot to both of my daughters, and I, I tended to read things that were a big stretch for them. And so, you know, even when they were one, I was reading things to them like um, Alice through the Looking Glass or... <laughs> You know, I think of the books I read to my first graders when I was teaching first graders, like James and the Giant Peach, you know, I was reading to my kids when they were two or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, you know, I, I read The Yearling, I read, uh, you know, The Odyssey, all those kinds of things. Now, I remember vividly when my second child was going off to college, I think it was the second one, and they tell me I always mix the stories. <laughs> Um, they won't see this, so it'll be okay. Um, I, they, we got talking about the books that I'd read to them as children, and they could tick off. You know, they knew I had read this one and that one. You know, Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and you know, and they were stunned to find out their mother read to them. 
They had no idea that mom had read to them. Well, mom had read all those little books. And they, as, as one of my daughters said, you know, dad, if you read a book to us, it took six weeks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> of course, we're going to remember, remember that. that. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're reading something that's going to go, you know, be done in 10 minutes. <laughs> You know, who remembers? <laughs> but, you know, if, if you've just spent several weeks, you know, reading this, this really, you know, the wind in the willows. Yeah. You're going to, that's, that's a funny. memory. You're going to remember, <laughs> you're going to remember the night you burst into tears uh, because Charlotte dies at the end of the book. You know, you're going to remember stuff like that, but you're probably not going to remember, as, as beautiful as it is, you're not going to remember the tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mom, you know, read it to you twenty-five times in two years. Uh huh. For a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, and that's not bad. You're building language, and you're building you're building closeness, and so on. But yeah, I probably gave my kids more knowledge out of those books. But I would argue the same thing. Think of all the cartoons that the kids are watching now. I've been trying to get my grandkids to watch some real people stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't have to be a multicolored, you know, big head, huge eyes kind of character. Uh, you know, it, it, you you can learn an awful lot about the world when you watch real people interact in TV and, and movies and so on. And I, you know, I see that what my, my grandkids watch and it's almost a heavy, you know, total dose of, of cartoon kinds of stuff. And, yeah. and so when we get them to, you know, watch an old, one of the Disney things that wasn't, uh, you know, cartoons, uh, they're kind of amazed <laughs> <laughs> and they like it. And, and, and I think they're learning things from that. I don't think we, uh, we use a lot of that kind of material, but I don't think we do enough talking to kids about it and showing them those things and, and intention. Yeah. Here's a film I I want you to watch, or here's a TV show I really want you to see. And I'm going to sit with you and watch it together and talk about it with you. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of thing. Um, not terribly different than what we do with books, right? Um, intentionality. Intentionality. Uh, you know, I talked about the research on, reading strategies. And I said, there's a lot of it and it was good. If you go back and look at the folks who were promoting that, one of the things that they often wrote, but didn't, I think of the late Michael Presley, someone who was a huge, uh, I don't think he ever wrote about strategies where he didn't say, but remember, it's important that the kids come away with understanding the text and with mm-hmm. the information from the text. It isn't enough that they learn to predict or that they learn to ask a question. Yeah. They have to get that knowledge. And I can remember any number of instances where teachers would say, well, you know, I don't think they understood the story, but they, they're really good at their predictions now. <laughs> and that's I know. We're missing it. <laughs> we're missing it. And, what I keep pushing the, the the publishers and so on to do with the textbooks is, you know, when you have those skills tests and all that stuff at the end of the week and the end of the unit, why don't you put in, yeah, I know you put the vocabulary in there and I know you put the different decoding skills in there and I know you put, you know, various, oh, we had them look for main ideas. So now we'll give them three paragraphs with main ideas and see if they can find them, that kind of stuff. But why don't you question them on the on the knowledge on the information can they retell that story can you know six weeks later can they do they not still know the information that they learned about uh, plants uh well we're not a, a science book we're not a social studies book 
But if you're going to spend that time having those boys and girls read often really good literature and often really content-rich text, Mm -hmm. and and most of the textbooks do that, but they don't worry about whether the kids actually learned it. And so let's not worry always about prior knowledge for this text. Let's be building knowledge for everything that the kids are going to be learning going forward. And that means using that reading instruction time, yeah, to teach kids some strategies and some language and things that can help them to read other things, but also to build knowledge, to make sure kids come away knowing that literature, knowing that information about their social and and, and natural worlds. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and we, that's something that that uh, Ms. Wexler and I a hundred percent are on the same team. Both yeah. promoting. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you guys that were more on the same page then. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I just think she she overdoes that study. It's a single sure. study, you know. Sure. There are a ton, of, you know, a ton of studies showing the importance <laughs> of of prior knowledge. Not a ton of studies showing that it's more important than being able to read the text. Mm, yeah kind of a one-off I'm wondering if um we could probably spend a whole nother hour on this but if you could in the last couple minutes we have together um talk about like the world we're living in right now where we have most of our students at home with parents doing maybe some kind of digital online learning (laughs) Lori's one of them um just any advice you would give in, in terms of like reading comprehension like what 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 should we be doing? <laughs> you know, school homes definitely shouldn't be schools, and yet this is a a strange situation. And and parents, um, I hope parents will take time trying to remember, you know, t- trying to be teachers again because they they were doing that when the babies were one. Yeah, uh, need them to get back to it. Um, some of the kinds of things that they can do, there are a ton of things that I, I think are too much to expect of parents, um, especially if they're still working or if they're trying to work from home while they're doing this stuff. Yep. But, they definitely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but there are things they can do. They can listen to their kids read mm-hmm. uh, and they can find, you know, they, if they don't have much text at home or the schools didn't manage to send home much text, in some cases they did, in some cases they didn't. But you can find text online and even on my site, I've got um, in under resources, there are things where there are free books and stuff like that. So parents can can find the text, listen to their kids read if their kids are already reading. Uh, If the kids aren't reading yet, uh, they should be reading to those kids and talking to the kids about the text. The kids are reading. The kids should be doing some reading every day, and the parents should be talking to them about that. The screens can be turned off. The TVs can be turned off. Uh, it, you know, let's let's get the kids reading. The kids can write, uh, and don't worry right now about spelling and stuff like that. But the kids can write, and and getting the kids to write every day, even the youngest ones. I know I just spent my afternoon the other day because my um, I, my second grader grandson was uh, supposed to be doing writing. Uh, each week uh, that the school had sent home. Last week, it took four hours. And <laughs> mom and dad weren't real happy about that. Nor, nor was Tyler. So uh, they called grandpa to see if grandpa could help. <laughs> on a uh, Zoom with my Presley. She's a second grader as well. And they could they could write together. Sometimes it's 
<laughs> well, Tyler managed to write 12 sentences in in like 10 minutes. And so it was a record, you know, he, it was his personal best. <laughs> he was thrilled. Uh, he wasn't real happy at the beginning, but he was happy by the end. Uh, getting the kids to read and write uh, and making that a daily part of what they do. And, and I'm not a math guy, but uh, again, if they've managed to send home some math problems and things like that, uh, you know, just setting aside some time while mom's cooking dinner or whatever, dad's cooking dinner, doing the dishes or, or whatever, that you can, you know, sit on the kitchen floor or sit at the kitchen table and, and, and do those things. Uh, I think most families can find you know, grabbing minutes here and there as much as, uh, you know, a couple hours a day to talk with the kids, to have kids reading, to have kids listening to you read, to doing writing. You don't need a lot of materials for all that stuff, but you, you've got to keep the kids heads in the game. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it could even be some really smart TV watching. You know, there's some wonderful nature shows. There's some wonderful historical things that whether they're on real TV or you go through some of the streaming services, I'm not trying to sell anybody's stuff. <laughs> if you mention one, then you have somebody else's. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, getting kids to, to build their knowledge through that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I read something today on Twitter where people are saying, well, kids aren't going to learn because they're not in school. No, that's not true. That's crazy. I read the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Boy, <laughs> it made me mad. I didn't respond because I would have said some really bad things. But um, yeah, uh, kids can learn a lot at home. I know my kids did. I know my grandkids do, even just when they come for a visit with me. Uh they certainly can learn a lot, uh, uh, you know, with some of the things that teachers are sending home. Um, I know my, I have a four-year-old granddaughter who her preschool is having them one day they're dressed up like Western characters and another <laughs> day they're, they're trying to, you know, do something, you know, it's just all these crazy things that yeah. she sends me the pictures and talks about. <laughs> uh, so they're, you know, None of that is going to be as good as you could make it if if you had a skilled teacher working with the kids with a real curriculum. But right now, those kinds of things ought to be done. And, and you know, I hope parents will find ways to, to do them. Um, yeah. I like that. I like um, just kind of the idea of sustaining, like much like you would consider over the summer is, is kind of what I'm thinking of it like, right? Like all those good things I would do to read with during the summer just they don't run away it's just it's happening right now <laughs> during the summer i'm going to have them sit down and read for a half an hour you know they're, they're going to stay in they're not going out they're not going to be on the screens they're going to sit and read for half an hour gee you know every week we're going to try to have a movie night where we all get together and watch this film together and talk about it and eat popcorn and you know those kinds of things just you know gee you know i'm going to have my kid i'm going to write them letters and they're going to have to write me back yeah. um yeah. you know Kids love that. That is one of the most fun. <laughs> I leave her notes on her. She's like a big easel. And I leave her little notes at, after she goes to bed and she wakes up and she'll write me back a note. And then she'll write me another note in the morning to tell me she left me a note and I should go check her note. <laughs> it's written dialogue that, I mean, they think is just in, an incredible way to communicate because it's different. 
And it's absolutely. absolutely. And so parents can do a lot of those things and those things should be fun. They should be enjoyable. If the youngster is burning out on it, you know, break it into pieces. Ah, oh, we did 10 mm-hmm. minutes now. And then in three or four hours when I take a break from my work, we'll do another 10 minutes, that kind of thing. Or, Gee, when we have lunch, while I'm making lunch, they can they can do a little bit more of what we started this morning. It doesn't have to, oh, we sat down for three hours. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of parents are feeling that that overwhelming right now. Like the, the schools are sending home so much work. And the advice that I'm giving to my friends is just like it, like just like what you said, just focus on the reading, the writing, do some some math here and there, pretend like it's summer and you know, in terms of just the way that you're approaching this and and just be kind. Like if your kid is freaking out for three, why? And I, you know, Tyler spending four hours trying to do this piece of writing that the teacher wanted was, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the parents weren't sure how, what to tell them to do, or should they write it for him or whatever. And I just gave him, you know, some easy ways of getting started and he got going and he was, you know, you can see him tearing up at the beginning, you know, which I hate to see at distance, you know, I can't, you know, put my arms yeah. around or whatever, but you know, he, he toughed it out and, you know, he tried it. And like I say, in about 10 minutes, he, he managed to write his 12 sentences and, and uh, he didn't even have to write 12. He just couldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he felt like he'd actually not just done the assignment, but he maybe learned how he could come up mm-hmm. with something to write about that, you know, wasn't going to take him all day. Right. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it was, it was a win all the way around, but now if the, if the youngster is crying over it or, or about to cry over it, you're not doing it right. Or you're doing too much of it, or, you know, you gotta, you know, yeah, do one of the sheets, not nine of the sheets. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be okay. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Every teacher listening would say, just, you know, be kind, worry about what's, what's best for that, the child now. Yeah, very good advice. Yeah. But, but, you know, teaching is part of our job as parents and, you know, community members. And so we do want our kids to know more. There's so much stuff that they can learn about. Um, yeah. Make it fun. Make it enjoyable. Share stuff you know. Yeah, yeah. as long as it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we're, and we're always so good at that. <laughs> biased, right? Accurate. <laughs> that, that, that's why in teaching we always apply the research so effectively. <laughs> that's, that's right. list of all, all of these key points. <laughs> Not just them; it's us too. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, we usually have all of our guests leave with uh, sharing. Um, piece of advice, but I feel like you already did that. Melissa. Yeah, I think we have lots of advice and we appreciate all of it. <laughs> Good luck to you folks. Everybody Thank be you. Safe. Thank you. Thank we you. Appreciate too. it. You too. Thank you for all that you do. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, so if you're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for continuing to listen to our podcast. We are so grateful. Um, if you haven't liked all of our different pages on all of our different social media, um, we have a Facebook page. We've got Instagram. We are on Twitter. Probably, Melissa, what would you say? The most active on Twitter? For sure, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all there. <laughs> wealth of knowledge for, I mean, you could connect with Tim Shanahan and see what he's thinking on Tuesday at 2 p.m. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So Twitter is like the hot spot for 
uh, this education, I think right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so, and please, um, if you haven't already go into whatever form you're listening to this podcast on, give us five stars, share some really positive feedback, connect with us. We look forward to hearing from you and we love hearing, uh, yeah, subscribe to the podcast yeah, emails. We love all of that. So thank you. Yeah. Subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Hear from all these great people in the future. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. 